Welcome to A Short History of Symmetry, a series of podcasts from the University of Warwick. In this episode, Professor Ian Stewart shows how the mathematician's work on symmetry and group theory influenced the work of physicists and how Einstein's work revolutionised our view of the symmetry of the universe around us. Okay, so mathematicians have got group theory and they're off playing mathematicians' games with it. But the physicists have started to notice... And the reason they've noticed is that the laws of physics have symmetries. And the key figure here, the most important physicist of the early 1900s, is Albert Einstein. And Einstein was a very good physicist and a reasonable mathematician, but he said himself he struggled a bit with the maths sometimes. And Einstein did not explicitly recognise the role of symmetries, but what he did was very quickly interpreted as being about the basic symmetries of space and time. And in fact, what Einstein showed was that the symmetries of space and time are not symmetries of space and time. They are more complicated symmetries of space-time, and that space and time get mixed up. So he changed our view of the symmetries of the physical world. And that's the deep reason behind relativity. Now, to understand quite what I mean by all that, we have to back up a bit. Physics after Newton, one of the most important developments in physics was electricity and magnetism. These were the big new areas. These didn't exist, really. A little bit of magnetism, not much else in in Newton's day. It was toys. It was the compass and not much else. But thanks to Michael Faraday, who developed all of the practical side of dynamos and motors and the kind of things we take for granted now, physicists realise that electricity and magnetism are very interesting and you can do lots of experiments and you can actually write down mathematical equations for how they behave. A Scottish mathematician, James Clerk Maxwell, mathematical physicist, wrote down things called Maxwell's equations, which are the fundamental equations for electricity and for magnetism. And in fact, when you look at them, it rapidly became clear you should actually combine the two together into equations for electromagnetism, Magnetism and electricity are two different aspects of the same thing. And so the first great unification of physics happened. Now, at some point, mathematicians particularly started asking themselves, what are the symmetries of Maxwell's equations? Okay, we know what the symmetries of Newton's equations are. You can move things in space, you can move things in time. These are two separate things. They don't interact with each other, but you can do both of them. If you try that on Maxwell's equations, it doesn't work. The equations for a moving electron are different from the equations for a stationary electron. And you have two choices here. You can either say, OK, so the physics is different, or you can say, no, there's something wrong with the maths. It's not the equations that are wrong. We're using the wrong symmetries. And that's what mathematicians of the time did. Some of the physicists started to do, and Einstein did to enormous effect. By looking at the symmetries of Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism, you're really looking at the symmetries of the movement of light. Because the most important thing that comes out of electromagnetism is electromagnetic radiation. In Maxwell's equations, there is a symbol C, which is the speed of light. From Maxwell's equations, you can show that there must exist waves that travel with the speed of light electromagnetic waves that travel at the speed of light. Can anyone think of something that travels at the speed of light? Light. Oh, so light is an electromagnetic wave. 
So it was dawning on the physicists that light is a wave phenomenon, and if you look at the symmetries of Maxwell's equations, you get very strange results, which is what Einstein is famous for. You get relativity. You discover that the speed of light, far from being relative as the name suggests, is actually absolute. The speed of light measured in a moving train is the same as the speed of light measured in a stationary train. If you shine a torch in a train that's moving at 50 miles an hour, then you expect the light to be moving 50 miles an hour faster. It doesn't. It moves exactly the same speed as it would do if the train wasn't moving at all. And this emerges very naturally from the structure of Maxwell's equations and their symmetries. And the other kind of things, in order for that to make sense, lots of other things have to change. And so Einstein showed that as objects get faster, they shrink smaller and smaller, they get heavier and heavier, and time passes more and more slowly. Why don't we notice? Well, two reasons. One reason is we don't normally move that fast. It's very hard to move anywhere near to the speed of light. It's so quick. But the other is, if, for example, you took a ruler and an object and travelled near the speed of light to see if the object shrunk, your ruler also shrinks and you won't notice any difference. You will shrink. It's not even clear that shrink is quite the word. In what frame of reference do we know things have shrunk? Well, not the one we're actually working in. It's just mathematically this is kind of how you interpret what's going on. So Einstein comes up with special relativity, which is to do with what are called Lorentz transformations of space and time. And they mix space and time up. They give us this limit on the speed of light, this strange behaviour of moving objects. They give us E equals mc squared. Energy is equivalent to mass, and a small amount of mass gives you a lot of energy, which is... It's kind of behind the atomic bomb. It's liberating some of the energy in, in, the, in the mass of the uranium or plutonium that's in the bomb. But they also give us a different idea of what the physical world is like. And it's a much stranger world than the one we think. And the strangeness shows up as soon as you move very, very fast. If you start moving close to the speed of light, everything is different. What's missing from the unification of electricity and magnetism and is also missing from Einstein's relativity, from special relativity, is gravity, which is the other big feature of Newton's laws. Newton has laws of motion and laws of gravity. Um, and Einstein got very concerned about how you could fit gravity into the special relativity framework. And it took him a long, long time to sort it out. He really struggled with this. And he had, he had a mathematician friend, Marcel Grossman, who helped him out. Now, OK, Albert, I'll tell you what it's like. And Grossman put him onto the work of Italian geometers who'd been developing the right kind of mathematics. It was called tensors. It was really tough stuff, and Einstein struggled with it. But eventually he managed to combine special relativity with gravitation, getting what's called general relativity. And the important feature is that gravity isn't really a force as such in this theory. Gravity is curvature of space-time. Now that's quite hard to wrap your head around. Um, in some sense, space-time is not sort of flat. It's not the way we think it is. It's bent. There's a way of understanding this, or at least getting an image into your head, which is if you think of um, 
you have to cut the dimensions down because space and time are four-dimensional between them and that's that's too hard to think about. So think of space as a kind of flat sheet, but make, make it out of rubber. And now take a large mass like a sun. So you, you take a large metal ball bearing and you drop it onto the rubber. And, of course, the rubber bends and it sinks down where this ball bearing is. And if you actually, if you run a little marble past then as the marble goes past the ball bearing, it dips down and then nips up again and carries on. And at long distances, it's straight. But as it's gone past the, the, the ball bearing, it's changed direction. And if you actually do the maths, this is exactly what you see when, let's say, a planet goes past the sun. Its trajectory is bent. The Newtonian explanation is the sun exerts a force. Einstein's explanation is no, space-time is curved and it's following the lines of curvature. So somehow space is sort of concentrated, there's more of it around a large mass. Uh, within a volume that ought to have a given size, there's actually more space inside it than there ought to be. It's like Doctor Who's TARDIS, you get inside the thing and there's more there than you think. And basically Einstein, gravity is like that. Um, in the space around a, a, a large heavy mass, there is actually more space than you would expect. It somehow got squashed together and concentrated. And that's what he really means by curvature. But then you have to mix in time as well. And you have to make special relativity work. And you have to make it all fit together. But I still manages to do this. So now we have a unified theory of space, time, matter, electromagnetism and gravitation. You know, which is not bad. Einstein's got this wonderful theory, but is it right? How do you tell? Um, there were very few tests that could be done at the time, but there were two predictions that he made which were tested fairly quickly. One was that the motion of the planet Mercury around the Sun should have a very, very subtle effect to do with the point at which Mercury gets closest to the Sun. The perihelion of Mercury, as it's called, slowly moves. And Einstein could predict how fast it moves, and that's a different prediction from the Newtonian one, and measurements showed Einstein was right. Another very famous prediction, which is the one that gets Einstein in the newspapers, this is the one that actually makes him the iconic physicist that everyone in the world recognises. He predicted that the sun would bend rays of light. Um... This is just like the marble going past the ball bearing in curved space-time. Light is some sort of particle, or so they thought at the time. It's probably a wave as well, but that's somehow... It's also particle-like. And Einstein showed that if you shine a ray of light past the sun, it should bend. And the problem is, how do you observe this? Because very bright sun, you can't see the light. answer is you wait for an eclipse. So if you take photographs of the sky during an eclipse when you can see stars on the far side of the sun, the prediction is those, the positions of those stars will seem to have moved very, very slightly. And Arthur Stanley Eddington, a British physicist and astronomer, mounted an expedition and they made these photographs and Eddington announced that the stars had indeed shifted we now think that it was very marginal whether he could really claim that or not. It's very difficult to do the observations accurately enough. But at any rate, he was convinced, everyone else was convinced, this was announced, and the newspapers went wild. Newton overthrown, 
space-time is curved. You know, and Einstein becomes a genius because he's predicted a new kind of physics. And actually, I think that's a pretty fair reaction when you think what he's done here. And for the first time, there was real evidence, not just the mathematics seemed to make sense, but no, the universe really is like that. Einstein is right. The mathematical understanding of symmetry has now acquired a new point of view. It's not just that there's a new object, the Lorentz group. There's a new kind of transformation, Lorentz transformations. They're very interesting. They're part of an even broader range of things which are called Lie groups, which are the ones that really come up in physics. They're named after a Norwegian mathematician, Sophus Lee. In physics, you don't just shuffle things around in some finite way. You have a whole continuum of transformations. I, I can pick an object up and I can move it any distance you like, infinitely many possibilities. Um, and not just one or two units, but one and a half, 1.576329 units, whatever. And it's that sort of transformation that comes out of Einstein's work and was studied actually a bit ahead of that period by the mathematicians in its own right. So these Lie groups are what's important. But the most important thing that emerges is the understanding that the the way to get at the deep structure of a physical theory is to ask what its symmetry group is. If you would like to find out more about the history of symmetry, Professor Stewart's book, Why Beauty is Truth, is now available. In our next episode, we take the story on to the emergence of quantum mechanics and how the story of symmetry relates to the world of waves and particles.